Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On April 3rd, the Walt Disney Company will be hosting its annual meeting of shareholders, and we need you all to vote for your board. It's important you vote only for Disney's 12 nominees using the white proxy card. Do not vote for the Tryon Group or Blackwell's nominees. Learn more at VoteDisney.com. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser, but I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I wanna wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. It is Thursday, July 20th. What a roller coaster ride for Netflix over the past year or so. We had the great Netflix correction where the company lost subscribers and the stock market freaked out, decided streaming wasn't that great of a business. Netflix stock dropped from almost $700 a share to about 180 bucks. Then the great pivot, where Netflix said it would sell ads and cut off all your deadbeat relatives that use your password. User growth returned slightly, and while the rest of Hollywood was still trying to figure out how to make money in streaming, Netflix reported actual profits from its service, and gradually that stock price rebounded all the way to yesterday, where the stock was up to about $480, more than double its value more than a year ago. Then the latest earnings report dropped, and as I predicted on this very show, the subscriber gains, thanks to the ad tier and that password crackdown, were double the projections, almost 6 million new subs and 238 million total worldwide, way bigger than any of the rivals. Places like Disney and Max have been either losing customers or static. Netflix ended its lower price $10 tier without ads in the US and UK hoping to push members to that $7, $8 ad tier, which is more lucrative for the company overall. And it reported a surge in cash, thanks to the writers and actors now striking all the shutdown productions. But the stock price actually dropped about 8% after hours, and it's down a bit today as well. Netflix's financials were a little less than predicted, meaning that despite all those new subs, Netflix is kind of acting like a slow-growth television company rather than a high-growth tech company that got it that amazing valuation in the first place. So what should we make of all this? Despite the dip, Netflix has pretty clearly righted the ship and is separating itself from its rivals in streaming. But is it out of the woods on a path to total domination? Are the streaming wars effectively over? To talk about the recent Netflix success, I wanted to bring in one of its fiercest critics over the years, Michael Pachter, the Wedbush Managing Director and Research Analyst. He covers digital media, and for more than a decade, he had recommended that clients sell Netflix shares. This was all the way back when Netflix was at like $6 a share, all the way up to almost 700 bucks. He was the guy saying, no, no, no. Harvard Business School actually did a study on his reluctance to embrace Netflix. But he eventually came around, and now he recommends people buy the stock. He's still got a critical eye on the company. So today, it's Netflix earnings, what to make of all the signs, and whether the first mover in streaming is now unbeatable. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All 
All right, we are here with Michael Pachter. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. One of the fun reasons I wanted to have you on the show is you were one of the original Netflix bears. You, for years, did not advocate that people buy the stock. It was overpriced. They were running off a cliff. They were spending too much money. Their debt was out of control. I remember this because I was sort of with you for a while. I was like, this cannot be sustainable. And now here we are. We're post-crash. Netflix has crawled its way back. The market seems to believe in Netflix again. And they had a very interesting earnings reveal yesterday where, for the most part, it seems like Netflix is pulling away from its traditional studio rivals in terms of streaming, which is the only business that Netflix is really in. But we had sort of mixed signals. What was your takeaway from the Netflix reveals yesterday? I mean, I think the most important thing is that they generated a lot more cash than anybody expected. You know, they guided that they would do three, three billion this year, and they're at 3.4 already this year. So they're way, way ahead of where they planned. And they took that number up to over $5 billion. That's a pretty big number for a company with you know, revenue in the $30 billions, you know, $33, 34000000000 billion range. Um, and that kind of shows the, the value of scale. And scale, truly, for, for a non-financial person, what that really means is incremental subscribers come in at nearly pure profit. You know, you might have a, a small right. cost to deliver the content, but you don't have to buy more content once you have a critical mass of subscribers. And that's HBO. You know, the same amount of content will keep everybody happy. So if HBO doubled in size, their profits would go through the roof. So Netflix is proving out the model. And I think that password sharing crackdown shows that they recognize that the value of a subscription is much more than $15.49 and they're going to collect that. And I think the lessons learned are that the other streaming companies should figure out how best to manage their production costs to make sure that that streaming window is profitable. And they're not doing that. Doing stupid things like debuting high-quality shows on Disney Plus or Paramount Plus, that's really dumb. They're, they're losing the opportunity to put them on you know, network broadcast. You're seeing Paramount putting Yellowstone season one on CBS now. Why didn't they do that you know, seven years ago? Because they're not very smart. Yeah, well, we'll get to the other companies, but I want, I want to, for a second, focus on Netflix here because sure. it wasn't all great, though. I mean, the profit number did not reach the level that some had expected. And even though the subscriber number was way up to almost 6 million new subscribers, the ad tier that Netflix has kind of bet the farm on here It's growing, but it's still so small compared to the rest of Netflix. It's not a meaningful ad platform yet. And they sort of acknowledge that. Yeah, all true. I don't think that the ad-supported tier is there so much to generate new subscribers as it is to become a safety net to catch lapsed subscribers. And they did something else yesterday. They announced it yesterday. They, they eliminated the basic plan, which is the $9.99, one device at a time, low definition plan. We saw that coming. Right, we did. They didn't get it. But what they're really trying to do is say, either you pay us $15.49 or you pay us $6.99 and give us a chance to generate you know $8 or so in ads. 
And if we can do that, everybody's paying 1549. That's the plan. Your criticism is warranted. I mean, they aren't in any kind of rush to roll that out. But that was the basis for my hatred of Netflix for the 10 years prior to my upgrade. I thought they were growing at all costs and that they were doing irrational things like burning as much as $3 billion a year in cash just to justify you know, growing subscribers. They're now taking a very slow and deliberate approach to rolling out the ad-supported tier. It looks to me like they're being really smart and rational about it. Let's do it right. Let's make sure advertisers get their value, even though we only have one and a half million ad-supported subscribers. So we want to make sure that we're targeting correctly. The ads delivered generate an ROI for the advertiser. And in the meantime, hey, if you quit a full-price subscription and look at their churn, I mean, literally 50 million or 100 million people quit every year. It's crazy. And they come back. Let's catch you with a lower cost here. I think that's super smart. And I think it's going to work for them for the next couple of years. Yeah, people go in and out because it's all about what show they want. I mean, it's, we've talked about this for years. It's not the same as the cable bundle. And to assume that you're going to capture people and keep them just because of inertia is not true. We see it in, with all these services now. And what Netflix does wrong that other guys get a lot better is they dump all the content at once. So, you know, so <laughs> the eternal debate. So you are a weekly drop guy. You're not a binge guy. Yeah, I'm a I'm an HBO subscriber since 1979, <laughs> and, and it has never occurred to me to quit because I have never gone more than three months without watching some show on HBO. And once the show comes out, they hook me for ten weeks, and they do that four times a year. So they keep me occupied for 40 weeks a year. They're really smart about it. Netflix is really dumb about it and they make it easy to quit. But you're just not into being delighted. Netflix wants to delight you every single weekend with something new that you will spend your entire weekend binging. Yeah, and I think that perspective is Reed Hastings' view. And I think it was born from a tech guy who doesn't understand media at all, looking at the impact of Seinfeld and Friends on his subscription and he dumped you know 200 episodes of each show on his service all at once and obviously if they put a new catalog title like suits up which is what they did this past few weeks yeah i expect to see all seven or eight seasons of course but i've never heard anybody complain about game of thrones coming out once a week for seven years never heard one complaint about it Nobody complains about how HBO delivers content. And if you want to wait, I did. I waited for Barry until the final episode dropped. And then I watched all the episodes because I didn't think anybody would spoil it you know, on the Internet. And they didn't. Um, so, no, the shows where you can spoil it because Game of Thrones, somebody dies every week. Oh, my God. You know, I have to watch it or else it will be spoiled. It'll be ruined. So it's a brilliant model, and HBO fails to recognize that that's an opportunity. So my sole complaint about them is they continue to drop content all at once, which makes it easy to quit. Yeah, I like the hybrid model where it's three up front and then weekly. Disney and Amazon, right, exactly. Yeah, Hulu does that too. All right, so let's go back to the Netflix earnings because the question I have for you is, you, know, you talk about this revenue per subscriber and how they want to push people into the ad tier in order to make more money off them. The revenue per subscriber was up this quarter, right? Actually, domestically down 
18 cents, I think, $16 versus 16, 18, but overall up. Yes. Okay. So if the overall revenue per subscriber was up and the subscriber number was up, why did the stock go down? They got into a wimpy revenue number next quarter or July, the September quarter. And their explanation for it wasn't satisfying, but it's probably accurate. They've only done password sharing crackdowns in 100 of their 200 countries. And as they are implementing the password crackdown in the other 100 countries, which are clearly lower average revenue countries, they're not going to offer a discount. So India among them. So I think they charge like $3 a month. I would say nobody pays for anything in India anyways. Right. Yeah. But they're not going to discount, you know, the, the price for me adding my college grad daughters who both live at home when they move out is $7.99 each, which is a discount. They're not doing that in India. So they decided to discount the service to everybody in those hundred countries before they roll out password sharing crackdown. And they're not going to discount the new subscription. But overall, they think they're going to gain more. I think that's a plausible explanation. Also, there's a bit of sandbagging in there. Um, remember that the writers and actors are on strike. Yeah, let's they're talk about to, that. Yeah, they're trying to signal poverty to the, to the writers and actors like, oh, woe is us. And look at our stock going down. And so I think it was very, very much deliberate. Oh, interesting. They set themselves up to give indicators that would cause the market to go negative for a bit just to appease the strike posturing? I do believe that. And the last thing I believe is that while Netflix is the least impacted of any media company by the strike, because they generate so much content overseas and so much of a catalog, they will be the first to sell. They will reach out because they know they're the least impacted. So if they give the writers and actors what they ask for, that pressures everybody else who is more impacted to lose even more money, which helps Netflix. So wait a second. Some of the conventional wisdom in town is the opposite. That Netflix is so averse to the transparency issue that they're going to be the hardliner that prevents the AMPTP from agreeing to anything that requires Netflix to reveal data other than how they put out now via their top 10 list. You think they should be separated? Yeah, the transparency issue, it's it's a hard one. And if for Netflix to say, oh my goodness, you know, we when we licensed this show, we thought we'd get a million views and we got 20 million views. So we owe the actors and writers 20 times as much. That's hard. They probably won't do that. But what they will do is they will share with the licensor, the media company that licensed the content to them, how many views they got. And if you create a, a movie that's a giant hit, and look at Chris Pratt. He made something like $4 million for Guardians of the Galaxy 1, and he made something like 20 for Guardians 2 because it was a big hit, and he wouldn't do two until he got paid. Sure, that's the traditional, the the agents salivate when the first one's a hit. So Netflix is looking at that model and saying, if we make a good deal and we get an actor for $4 million and it's a giant hit, then he should be able to ask for it in the next thing we ask him to do. Yeah, but that's traditional. I'm sure they did that with Chris Hemsworth on Extraction 2. Totally. What so, I'm talking about are these but no, shows. But that's my point. Chris Hemsworth knows. That's the point. So Chris Hemsworth's agent is able to say, how many views did Extraction 1 get? We need to double Chris's salary for, for two. That's exactly what the actors and writers should be seeking for, for residuals from shows is 
give us some indicator of how popular something is. It doesn't have to be every last little metric, and they certainly don't want the stuff to be public. I get the competitive advantage of that, but there's a way to monitor it, much like television's monitored by Nielsen. You know, box offices monitored. I forgot the outfit, but they somebody meant monitors. Uh, yeah, Comscore. Yeah, so there's the data's there, much like the App Store is monitored by Apple, but the actual data isn't given out. There's a way to do it. And I think Netflix would be amenable to that. Because again, it's free publicity. It would show what's the most popular stuff on Netflix, and they want that promoted. Interesting. I mean, a lot to break down there, because I think that some of the challenges is that Netflix doesn't want people to know what isn't a hit. You know, oh, they love telling sure people what's a hit. They wouldn't like telling creators and others especially the public, oh, this show we spent $200 million on, it's not really doing great. So that's the, the real gist of what I was saying about Netflix changing the business model. They mm -hmm. used to be that way. They yeah, used of course. To throw, they used yeah, to throw yeah. spaghetti at the wall and they make a, a show like Bloodline or Hemlock Grove and they just got worse and worse and worse. And then they just quietly canceled them and you just didn't hear about it again because nobody was watching and nobody cared. Now they're focused on profit and cash flow. Now they're being really smart about risk. And so that's why 25 new Korean produced television shows, they're going to spend a lot less money on their content. I think HBO has been good at that for years. If they make a flop like vinyl, it gets canceled after one season. We're still waiting on the idol. Craig's holding out hope. He wants to see idol season two. <laughs> when they canceled vinyl, I was heartbroken. I thought it was good, but nobody was watching it. And we knew that because HBO reveals consumption data. I think it's important for shareholders at Netflix to know when they have stinkers because they can evaluate management and know if management is spending money on bad projects. And in fairness, Ted Sarandos was just not a media guy. I mean, he's, he's become one, but I don't think he's got this keen eye for what works and what doesn't work. Really? He's been oh, doing God. this a long time. Yeah, they make a lot of crappy shows. They greenlight <laughs> green everything. Again, I'm also encouraged because they're making fewer movies. So they, they're making a statement that they get it, that they understand they can't just spend money and throw spaghetti at the wall. So, yeah, I expect I expect the actors and writers are going to get something out of them. I, I will not predict full transparency. That's That's a little difficult, but I will predict some transparency, greater transparency. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight Saving Time is back. Wait, wasn't that a movie from 2009? Okay. Anyway, I do love more hours of daylight. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash town. Tap the banner to learn more. The market also may have noticed that Netflix said that they were saving costs on their content spend because of the strike. But that money is going to be spent at some point. It's just kind of sitting there now. And they what do they use the term lumpiness that they're spend might might cause some lumpiness in 2024 because they're going to make up for all these productions that they're not doing right now? I mean, yes, 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 and yes. They have managed to grow their free cash flow, you know, from a, a loss of 
uh, $3 billion in 2019 to a profit of five, so $8 billion. And their revenue has only gone up by $13 billion. So they're converting a ton of incremental revenue into profit. And that's cash flow is profit. So the, the point there is they're necessarily spending less per new subscriber than they were spending on the originals. They were spending 65% of new revenue. Now they're spending 35% of new revenue. That's what's going on. So they're absolutely spending less. And they can talk all they want about lumpiness, but th- this is deliberate. They get it. They know exactly what they're doing. And the other thing is, as I said, they're so heavily international production and catalog. They'll just greenlight more Scandinavian shows, yeah, you know, more, exactly. more British shows. And, and they work. But that's kind of why I've thought that Netflix is so well positioned to ride out this strike because these delays hurt Netflix's rivals so much more than it hurts Netflix. You know, the summer movie season is imperiled at this point. That helps Netflix. So you heard my prediction, which is that they unilaterally step out and strike a deal Mm -hmm. that pressures everybody else to incur even greater losses, which they probably won't do. And then what do you mean by just by just their normal content spend? Yes. Well, by paying actors and writers more if they follow Netflix's lead. Oh, right. Okay. if If the other media companies remain intransigent, Netflix is carved out. Everybody will work for them because they settled. And right. they'll have content nobody else will. Remember that there's 500 television series produced in the U.S. every year. You know, Netflix used to be the only guy doing it other than the network so they could get whatever they wanted. Now they compete for everything. You read all the time about deals like House of Cards was offered to HBO and turned down and Netflix grabbed it. That doesn't happen anymore. So I think okay. Netflix creates a competitive advantage by settling with writers and actors. And if HBO doesn't, Netflix is going to get the next Westworld. They did say, though, that their show pipeline was going to be impacted in 2024. So they are being hit just like the others. Oh, 100%. Stranger Things isn't being produced. 100%. And how many months has this been going on? Two. And how many months will it go on? Six more? Sure. It's absolutely going to impact everybody. But the guy who settles first looks like a hero, looks like the friend of the industry, And they can do it and screw everybody else. And that is who they are. All right. So the password sharing crackdown, do you think it's working? I do. It's reminiscent of, you know, 2000, 2001, when Apple invented the iPod and they went to the record labels and said, look, your music's getting ripped off on Napster and Crockster and Kazaa. And if you charge a nominal amount, a dollar, 99 cents, people want to feel good about themselves and they'll spend it. They'll pay. And the record labels were really convinced that was wrong, but they grudgingly signed up. Well, they didn't want an outsider dictating the terms of their price. I mean, that's Absolutely. what ended and up that, happening. You know, and that was uh, HBO again. That was HBO saying The Sopranos is worth more than a dollar per episode, if you remember. But what ended up happening is the music industry was pulled back from the cliff and didn't die, you know, and, and recovered. So, yes, I think password sharing is the same thing. People don't really want to steal. You don't know, Craig. He's waiting. Uh, He's waiting with his gun at his door for the Netflix password police to show up. You know, I just I actually just asked Netflix this question yesterday to make sure I was getting it right. The only way you get to seven ninety nine is if the existing subscriber pays the extra fee. 
So it's like me inviting someone into my cell phone plan. I can add people for 40 bucks. Yeah. So the real thing is you're going to get cut off, Craig, if you're stealing, uh, if you're stealing a Netflix signal. And yeah, I absolutely think it's working. And the numbers suggest that. I mean, we have a little bit of data now that people are going into that $8 offering. Yes. And there's a media monitor startup called Antenna that mm-hmm. does a very good job of showing that. Yes, it's working. And the ad-supported tier, you believe, is working. These numbers, the growth, while it's still small, it's most of the new subscribers that come in are opting for that ad tier. Yeah, the one and a half million number is primarily U.S. And the U.S. number the last couple of quarters is up less than one and a half million. So I actually think what the ad-supported tier is doing is catching the people who quit. And so the net subscriber addition, that 5.9 million person number, that is the sum of the number of new subscribers minus the people who churn out. I think the minus part went down. So gross subs maybe was 7 million and churn was 1.1 instead of gross being seven and churn, you know, four. That's what happened. So I think you ended up with far fewer people churning out and they swung over to ad supported tier. So I actually don't think it's a tool to add new subscribers. It's a tool to retain lapsed subscribers. So what are the other guys supposed to do about this? What are the other media companies who are floundering to find a model in streaming supposed to make of what Netflix is doing and where they are right now? So the first thing Netflix does that they can't emulate is they offer you content for about 50% of the cost of the consumer of what the other guys are offering. So you know the number of hours spent on Netflix divided into the price, you know, the mm-hmm. dollars per hour is about half of the dollars per hour generated on, on broadcast. So that's just a metric to say people are getting value out of their Netflix subscriptions. Correct. But Disney is priced appropriately because you don't watch that many hours of Disney and Paramount's priced appropriately because you don't watch that many hours. They need to get the hours up and they can't afford to do it. Netflix's model's wrong. Netflix is charging half as much as they should charge. Mm-hmm. And oh, the they'll get there. They will get there someday. And the only reason they were able to do that is they were enabled by the two biggest culprits, Disney and CBS, who gave them and licensed them anything that they could license to generate profit and ride their stock higher. Don't forget the U.S. government that lowered interest rates so money was so cheap that they could just spend whatever they Absolutely. Want. I think what the streaming services should do is go back to windowing. Don't license content to Netflix unless it's old and has already been yeah. viewed. Create an appropriate window so it doesn't show up there. And, you know, HBO was the first to be smart about this. They would refuse to license any content to streamers until it was three years old. You know, so you never got Game of Thrones on Amazon Prime, you know, when they first, when they did their short, short-lived deal. I think you got to go back to that window. I think all the other media companies should cut their streaming service completely. Oh, really? I <laughs> just get out of the business. It's okay to have... You know, Max, if it's offered on cable, have the same exact thing, just turn it into on demand. That makes sense. But allowing me to have a separate subscription without cable is really dumb because if you're Disney Plus, because you lose that $10 a month for ESPN that I'm paying with my direct TV subscription. So they're cutting their own throats by emulating Netflix because Netflix doesn't have an existing business it needed to protect. Disney can't figure out why they're making less money with this wonderful Disney Plus product. 
And I think Iger's way smarter than me, but he's really stupid about this. Where it all came from is Netflix got an irrational valuation and the boards of the media company said, well, why is Netflix trading at 40 or 50 times earnings and you, Disney, are trading at 10? You should have a streaming service too. And Iger should have said, no, we need to starve Netflix, put them out of business, keep everything in Windows, go back to really long delays between when a television show gets onto Netflix and starve them into submission. They just blew it. Yeah, but you can't deny the future, though. The consumer loves streaming. Yeah, I like free food, too, and free gasoline (laughs) and free education. Who cares what you like? That doesn't dictate how business works. Yes, we like it. So like I said, if you want to be a streaming subscriber, you have to subscribe to cable first. And then all the add-on services you get on demand all the time. All your cable TV shows on demand all the time. That's fine. Fascinating stuff. We will definitely have you back. I could talk to you for hours about this. Uh, Michael Pactor, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. All right, we're back with the call sheet. Craig, do you have your Barbie and Oppenheimer tickets for the weekend? No, I waited too long, and now everything is sold out, and I can't remember the last time I couldn't get a damn movie ticket. It's kind of amazing. I'm getting emails from people because we discussed the Barbenheimer phenomenon on the show yesterday. I'm getting emails from all over the world, people sending me photos of the lines of people to buy tickets and get into Barbie. There was a Producers Guild screening for Mission Impossible last night that was like taken over by the Barbie people in the theater next door. <laughs> it's like they're, they're mobilizing worldwide. The best thing that ever happened about these movies is them coming out on the same day. You think so? I, I think Barbie probably would have been fine on its own. I think they both would have been fine, but I think this is a multiplier. Yeah, it, I agree. One plus one is going to equal four or five here. Yes. We talked a little bit yesterday about the tracking and where these movies are headed, but we now have the final pre-release data and the projections for Barbie, while still across the board, seem to be coming in at about an average of about 110. Some have it much higher. Some say it won't even get to 100 based on the reasons we talked about yesterday. I'm going to take the over, the way over on the 110, 120 tracking. I think this movie is going to get to 150. I think the pre-sale wow. numbers are outrageous. It is uh, it has definitely become a thing in the zeitgeist. So I don't need to to win the bet. All I have, all I have to do is beat the coverage here, beat the beat the number. And I'm going to take the over on 110, 120. I agree. What about Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer is at about 48, the tracking. And I'm also going to take the over on that. I think that you're right, that this has become a phenomenon and people are going to see it that wouldn't have otherwise seen it just to be part of the meme, part of the the culture. So I, you know, if I had to guess, I think it'll probably do mid fifties, but uh, I'll take the over on 48. This is the second meme phenomenon we've seen in theatrical movies in the last year. We saw it with Minions last year. We saw Gentle Minions. And now I consider this kind of another meme movement here, which seems to be the key to having an overly successful box office performance, except the one issue is nobody can figure out how to actually create a meme movement organically. It's terrifying for Hollywood because you can't control this. No, it it just happens or it doesn't. And you pray that it catches on on TikTok. And if it doesn't, you're screwed. The 20-year-olds are are running Hollywood, actually. (laughs) Which they kind of always have, in a way. But now they are firmly in control of what they think is cool. And the marketing can help. 
but not always. Not they they take it into their own hands. I love those memes of the somebody in like a, a black suit saying one ticket to Oppenheimer, and then it's them in like board shorts and a pink shirt saying and one ticket to Barbie. The memes are great. All right, that's the show for today. I want to thank my guest, Michael Pactor. I want to thank producer Craig Holbeck, our editor, Jesse Lopez. I want to thank you. We'll see you next week. 